0: The book of Hebrews was a letter written to a group of Jewish believers who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. They had left behind the law, they had left behind the sacrificial system, and in exchange they had embraced Christ and his sacrifice for them that he made on their behalf at Calvary. In deciding to follow Jesus, they became Christians. They became part of the church as we know it. Oftentimes you'll hear me refer to the church. Sometimes it's our church individually. Sometimes it's the church as the body of Christ as a whole. They became part of the body of Christ as a whole. In deciding to follow Jesus, in deciding to become Christians, well, it brought about persecution in their life. It brought about difficulties. Many of them were forced from their homes They were banned from the synagogues, banned from the temple. Many had to forfeit their land and even lost the support of their friends and family. With these things happening, some of these followers, some of these Jewish followers of Jesus were beginning to go back. They were turning back to their old way of life, back to their rituals, back to their traditions, back to the sacrifices they had left behind. They were going back to the old covenant. Why? Because it was familiar to them. Because they thought it would bring uh, peace. They thought it would be easier. They were headed back. The writer of this letter, the writer of Hebrews, is greatly concerned for these brothers and sisters that would be considering going back. They were settling for less than God's best. They were exchanging their freedom in Christ. They were exchanging their salvation for an old religious system. They were going back. With this in mind, the writer wants to persuade them that Christ is better. He wants them to know that Christ is supreme. Jesus is better than the prophets, for the prophets spoke on behalf of God, but Jesus spoke as God. Jesus is better than the angels, and although the angels surround the throne of God, where is Jesus? He's seated on the throne of God, at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has been appointed heir of all things. The worlds were made by him. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's glory. He's upholding all things in the world by the word of his power, Jesus alone purged your sins and my sins. He did something that we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus has a more excellent name than the angels, and he is above them. As we enter into chapter 2, the author is going to begin by giving his readers a warning. This is the first of several warnings within the letter in the book of Hebrews. It's going to get gradually more and more firm, more and more stern, but this one is not too bad. In other words, what the author will tell us in light of what I've just told you about Jesus, in light of the position that he holds, in light of who he is, he said he's going to tell us you need to be careful that you don't drift away from the Lord. Look there in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, Lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles. And gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, the author begins here this chapter. And please remember, there were not chapters and verses in the original letter. It was just one long letter. We we have made it chapters and verses so we can reference it quickly. He begins here with therefore. In other words, because Jesus is supreme, because Jesus is better, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. The things that we have heard. We need to pay attention to what we've heard. They have heard words. Right now you're sitting listening to my words. The words that they heard are from Jesus to the apostles. We can relate this in our culture. We need to give heed to the things that we have heard. That is the word of God. The things that God has told us. The things that God has revealed to us. That's what we today need to give heed to. The things spoken of by Jesus. The things that have been recorded in the scriptures. Essentially, we need to, just like they needed to, pay attention to the word of God. For them, it was the words. For us, it's the written word, the Bible. He told them very clearly, if you neglect the words which you heard, if we neglect the word of God, then we're in danger of drifting away. Drifting. The word drift, it means to gradually move, to be gradually, slowly moved off of a point. It has the implication there that you don't even know that you're moving. You're just drifting. You're just slowly moving off of point. A boat attached to an anchor that's affixed into something does not drift, unless, of course, the line is broken or the anchor is lifted up. As Christians, what they're telling us, what he's telling us there, if we are not taking heed to the words which we heard, if we are not taking heed to the word of God, then we are in danger of drifting. Have you ever drifted in your Christian walk? I have. I know what it's like to drift away. Sadly, I've watched many Christians, many people drift. They begin to be moved off of a course. It's not something that happens overnight, but over time. It happens slowly. Many times, as I said, you don't even realize that you're in the process of drifting. You're not even sure. When it starts, you're not aware of it. It's so gradual that you don't even realize you've been moved until you hit the rocks, until you're shipwrecked after Christmas this year when we went to Florida to visit Rebecca's family I took my little seven year old Abigail to the beach her and I went to the beach together and I got to sit on the isn't it great to think you're at the beach in January we were in, it was January we were at the beach she was swimming in the water wow man that, whew, Florida sounds good now we were at January she's in the water and I'm watching her play and the waves would come in and she would jump over the waves and as I'm, as I'm watching her jump over the waves, I sat there enjoying the sun. She's playing. And what I realized very quickly is she was drifting. She didn't know she was drifting. For apparently, occasionally, she would look back at me, make sure she would find me, and then she would move back in front of me. But as she got more and more comfortable, more and more enthralled in the waves, as she jumped over one wave and waited for the next, she began to slowly drift down the beach. Now, I was watching her. I never took my eyes off her. I knew exactly what was happening. Do you know why she was drifting? You know what was causing her to drift? You go, yeah, the current was causing her to drift. No, no. The current was the the thing that was moving her, but what was pulling her away, what was causing her to drift is because she was not anchored on some fixed point. You see, I was her fixed point. If she would continually look at me, she would never drift. She would fight against the current. I would be the point she focused at, and she would say, I can stay here. If she began to move to the left, she would move back. If she began to move to the right, she would move back, but she could stay right there. I should have been her point of reference, but when she stopped looking at me, she began to focus on the environment. She began to focus on the waves. She began to focus on the water. She began to focus on how much fun she was having at that very moment. She was having fun, but she lost sight of her reference points. So I watched, and I waited. You know what I waited for? I waited for that moment she turns around, and she looks and goes, where's Dad? And I watched, you could see her face as she she realized that she'd been playing for a while. She hasn't checked in with me. She turned around and she looked for me, and she couldn't find me. I wasn't there. I, I wasn't there. In her mind, I could bet anything she thought I left. I hadn't moved. I was in the same spot. She was the one that had drifted. Now I quickly walked down to the beach and, you know, like any crazy dad would, waved my arm so she would know that I'm here. And she, she saw the relaxation come on her face as she was now centered again on the thing that would keep her safe, on the one that would protect her. Like Abby, looking at the waves in the water, sometimes when Christians drift, they're only looking at their circumstances. They're only looking at what's going on in their life. They've lost sight of that fixed point, and They begin to drift. And they don't even realize they're moving from their position. You see, as a Christian, God's word needs to be that fixed point in my life. It needs to, it's the thing that doesn't move. It's the thing that doesn't change. It's the thing that keeps me anchored. I need to be stuck on that. But if I begin too focused on my circumstances, I will drift. If you have lost the passion for God's word, if you figure, yeah, I already know that, I got that verse down. I don't want to go to church today and hear him teach. I've already done. I've already read through Hebrews chapter two. I've already look. I've even got that verse highlighted in my Bible. I don't really need that today. I, I I need something different. If you've lost the passion for God's word, if you've become apathetic to God's word, you might be drifting. You might be moved off a point, and you don't even realize it. Slowly, your devotional life begins to fade away. then your prayer life will diminish, and all of a sudden your attendance at church is is somewhat spotty. You begin to look for all kinds of excuses why you can't go to church, why you don't want to hear the Bible taught. You'll turn off the radio station because you don't want to hear that. You don't like the people in church. You don't like the pastor. There's always a, a reason not to go. You're too busy to spend time at church. You're too busy to serve in ministry, too tired. You're drifting. You know when you wake up? When you finally hit the rocks. When you finally wake up and you realize, "Uh uh-oh, how did I get here? What just happened? How How did my life that seemed to be so close with the Lord, I was walking with him, all of a sudden I'm shipwrecked on the rocks, what happened? You didn't know you had lost sight of the thing you should be focusing on. You lost sight of Jesus Christ, you've lost sight of God and his word, and you began to drift away. Isn't it wonderful that the author of Hebrews is warning them, and in turn he's warning us about it. Hey, this can happen if you're not careful. When you finally hit the rocks, you'll wake up and think, how did I get here? And you know, you might even think, well, God left me. Abby looked for me, thinking I may have left. I didn't leave. I was in the same spot. God hasn't moved one bit. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. His word has not changed. It's the same. He hasn't left you. You've drifted from him. If you continue to drift, you will eventually be shipwrecked. Well, how do I keep from drifting? Take heed to the word of God. He told you right there in verse 1. Take heed to the word which was spoken to you. That's God's word. Are you still taking heed to the word? That doesn't mean just coming to church and listening to it. That means the, the word of God, I'm taking heed to it. It means it has an impact in my life. It's changing me. I'm trying to be more like it. I'm taking it as, it it becomes my reference point. When God's word says no, I say no. When God's word says do this, I do this. It's not just, well, I attended church, I heard what it said. No, no, that's being a hearer of the word, not a doer of the word. Taking heed to it means it's impacting me. Do you take joy in knowing that God has a plan for you? Do you know that as you sit down with him in your morning devotions or your afternoon devotions, your evening devotions, that he wants to speak to you through his word? He wants to teach you more about himself He wants to talk a little bit about you. Maybe he wants to show you something that you've never seen before there. Do you realize that? Well, what if I've drifted? Isn't it probably fair to say we've all drifted? And don't always think drifting is caused by something bad. Sometimes we think, well, someone's drifting in sin. Sometimes we can drift for good reasons. Abby was drifting in the water having a good time. Sometimes it's a success in our career that can cause us to drift. I just don't have time anymore. Sometimes it's something good that can pull us aside. Other times it's, maybe it's our health. We get so focused that our health is bad. We get so focused on a bad relationship. Whatever it is, we take our eyes off that fixed point of God's word, off of him. We begin to look only at our circumstances. Next thing we know, we're halfway down the beach. We go, how do I get back? What do I do? How do I get back? It's easy. First you repent and you reestablish contact with that fixed point. Once the minute Abby saw me, she knew everything's good. Dad's here. He didn't leave me. He's right here. How do we do that with the Lord? It's simple. Lord, forgive me. I'm drifting. I, I re- your word has convicted me of drifting. Lord, I need to reestablish with you. And you re-anchor your life in Christ through the word of God. You pick right back up where you left off. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. We drift when we fail to take heed to the word of God. I've been there. I know what it's like to drift. I think it's part of the Christian walk. We all tend to drift. The question is how far will you go before you come back and reestablish that point of contact through the word of God with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hopefully, this is a warning for us this morning. We also drift... For another reason, he tells us there in verse 2, he tells us we drift because we take our salvation for granted. Verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? When the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the scriptures tell us that the angels played some part in that. We don't exactly know what it looked like. We don't exactly know how it happened. We don't exactly know what part that was. But Acts chapter 7, verse 53 tells us the law was received at the direction of the angels. So the angels played some part in giving the Jewish people the law. So if the law spoken by the angels, the Jewish law he's speaking of here, because he's writing to Jews, remember, to Hebrews, if the law spoken by the angels proved steadfast, it proved to be known with certainty, and under that law that was given to the Jews, every transgression, every disobedience, every single sin was rewarded justly. And that's not a good justly reward. That word also, it can mean it was, you were, it was penalized or retribution. In other words, you got the reward for breaking the law, you got the penalty for breaking the law, and it was done justly, exactly the way it was supposed to be done. So if the violation of this law that was given to the Jews by Moses and all of those violations were were rewarded justly, or they were all penalized, if that's the case, then how will we as Christians escape if we neglect so great a salvation that we have in Jesus Christ? the answer is we won't we won't escape the first person to neglect the salvation of jesus christ is the one who says i don't believe i don't want anything to do with them no thank you that's your religion that's your faith i'm done with that the second person that does that the person the believer that says you know what i I, I don't i don't really care about my salvation It's, it's it's just a date in a book somewhere it's just a time in history it's just a it's just something in the past they become apathetic towards their salvation The word for neglect, it means without care or to show no concern for, to be careless. The author goes on to tell us this great salvation, it was planned out from the beginning. It was first spoken of by the Lord, by Jesus. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That's the apostles. But that's not all. Look there at verse 4. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Verse 3 told us this salvation. It was spoken of by the Lord. It was talked about. It was planned. The Old Testament speaks of the coming Messiah. It's not something that just happened. It was It was planned out. It was confirmed by those who heard the Lord. That's the apostles as they began to share the gospel. Verse 4 tells us that God himself... Bears witness of this great salvation. How? He told you with signs and wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, and this is all according to His own will. He's validated salvation. He said, Listen, I talked about it in the Old Testament, I talked about it in the New Testament, Jesus talked about it, the apostles talked about it, I gave signs and wonders. It all validates salvation. It's very, very much real. You ever neglected your salvation? Maybe you haven't gone as far as say, well, I don't, I don't want that anymore. Maybe you've just become sort of callous to your salvation. Maybe you've just kind of taken it for granted. Maybe you've just, well, I don't really think about that. Do you realize that's the greatest miracle that Christ ever did? Was save me from my sins and save you from your sins? If he never did anything else for you in your life, if that was it, what right would we have to ask for anything else? He said, I'll take the penalty for your sins. If you've ever been to that place or you go, I've I've neglected it, Rob. I've taken it for granted. What do I do? It's easy. Just recenter yourself. Turn around. Repent. Give thanks for your salvation. Go back and remember the first time you realized your sins were forgiven. Do you remember the burden that was lifted off you when you thought, wow, wait a minute. I'm not going to be held accountable for all that stuff that I did? I'm not... are you serious? My sins are forgiven. Do you remember what the, the freedom, the joy that was felt that first time you accepted Christ? Not, not, it's the same thing. You go every time, if you've drifted, go back to it. You'll have the same thing. You, you go back right there where you left off. God is faithful. He will restore you, He will reconcile you, He will heal you. But you first have to recognize where you're at. If I dig my heels and go, I'm not drifting. And maybe, just not everybody's drifting. There's times in my life where I'm not drifting, but sometimes I I realize I've drifted and have to get back. But if you go, I'm not drifting. You go, well, how do I know if I'm drifting? Ask the person that you came with today. They'll probably give you a pretty good indication of if you're drifting or not. Because you know what I found? It's very true. I don't know when I'm drifting. But you know who knows when I'm drifting? My wife knows when I'm drifting. She will be very clearly and very lovingly say, hey, why don't you go spend some time with the Lord today? And I know that means... I, I'm drifting. I need to go back and get recentered. I've I've drifted down the beach a little bit, and I got to get myself recentered on the Lord. If you're not sure if you're drifting, ask them. They will be glad to tell you because they probably want you back to exactly where you were. So the writer has demonstrated the supremacy of Jesus over top of the angels, and now I love this when the Bible does this. It's almost like it's anticipating a question. It's almost like the writer is writing and he realizes at this point the reader's going to have a question. And here's what he's considering. Here's the question. If Jesus is so much greater than the angels, if he's supreme, like you've just told us all through chapter 1, if this is the case, if he's the creator, if he's the sustainer of all things, why did he have to go to the cross? Why did he have to become human? Why did he have to die? Why did he have to suffer? That doesn't make any sense for someone, some uh, for, for God to have to come and suffer on the cross. That makes no sense to me. Can you explain that to me? I think he will. The writer's going to focus on teaching us why Jesus had to become human and why he had to suffer and die. Look there at verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, that's the future, of which we speak in subjection to angels. Verse 6, but one testifies, or one testified in a certain place, saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that, he put all in subjection under him. That's under man. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see all things under him. The writer there quotes from Psalm chapter 8. If you've never read it, jot it down, go back and read it. It's a beautiful psalm. But what he leaves off is the beginning of the psalm, the first several verses. And the psalmist in those first several verses, he's considering, he's talking about the greatness of God. He reflects upon the excellence of the name of God. He reflects upon the glory of God, the strength of God, the creation of God. And after reflecting on who God is, he asks the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? Why do you want anything to do with mankind? He reflects upon that. He says he's a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. And when I first read that, that brings a question to me. I don't, I don't see all things in subjection under man's feet right now. I don't see that, but follow up with me on this. Let me explain. Way back at creation, back in the book of Genesis, back when in the Garden of Eden, Eve, garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were created, way back there, man was given dominion over the earth. All things were underneath of him. He walked with God. He took care of the garden. What a great job he had. He got a chance to name the animals, eat the fruit, hang out with his wife, talk to God in the cool of the day, and just enjoy this beautiful creation. What a privilege man had. The animals would come up and hang out with them. There was no death. But that's not what we see today. Why? Because man had a problem. Man sinned, and sin entered the world. Do you remember what God told Adam as he gave the instructions? Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you do, he said, you will surely What did he say? Die. You're going to die in the day that you eat of it. When Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, everything changed. Instantly, death passed to all men. From that moment on, all mankind would die. Death became born, so to speak, and mankind was now born to die. God's original intention for mankind to enjoy that garden, to hang out with him in the cool of the day, had now been marred by sin. God had given mankind a choice, don't eat from it. But they ate from it, they brought sin, and at that moment, the world became broken and fallen. At that moment, the animals became afraid of man. The ground started growing thorns and thistles. Everything changed. I don't see the world today being underneath of man. But look at the last part of verse 8. He tells you that. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. You know what I see as I look around the world? I see sin, I see evil, I see broken homes, I see broken relationships, I see hurt people, I see violence, I see crime. It's all under the dominion of Satan. He's the one that has dominion. Man forfeited the title deed to earth when he sinned. He gave it over, he turned it over, but isn't it great? But it won't always be that way. Did you catch the words there? Not yet. Not yet. In the future, sin will be removed. Satan has been defeated. Man will once again have dominion over the earth and we will rule and reign with Christ. We at some point in the future will go back to the way that it was. Even better because there'll be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming. And you go, wait, wait, wait. Why why is that not happening now? That's not what we see today. I I want that now. What's what's taking so long? God is long-suffering. For if he were to do that now, many of our friends and family members would perish because they don't know the Lord. There may be people sitting in this room right now that don't know the Lord. Why why is it not happening now? Because he's waiting for people to accept Jesus Christ. He's waiting for them to realize, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness for my sins. So here we are, living together in this fallen and broken world. What do we see? In the midst of the tragedy, in the midst of the evil, what do we see? Look at verse 9. But... We see Jesus. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Adam's sin brought death. Jesus' death brought life. Today, we don't have dominion over the earth the way Adam did. But yet, in the, middle of, in the midst or the middle of this chaotic and sinful world, we have Jesus, the Savior of the world. And just like man was a little lower than the angels when he was created, Jesus voluntarily became a little lower than the angels. The deity of Christ had to be clothed in humanity in order to save you and me, to save us. The creator, he had to become like his creation. Why? Because there was no other way. He had to become so that he could suffer and die. Well, why would God want to suffer and die? He told you right there, by the grace of God, so that he might taste death, or I'm sorry, test death for everyone, taste death for everyone. That he might taste death for everyone. Notice it says there, everyone. His atonement is not limited to certain groups of people. It says everyone there. At the moment Adam sinned, he was no longer the master of himself. His flesh became his master. He was fallen, he was a slave to sin, and death was imminent. I don't know if you know it or not, but there is a death problem in the world. You can get together, you can get Congress together, we can fund a study, and you know what we're going to find? Everybody's dying. Ten out of ten people die. It's happening, it's going on around us. We have to deal with it. It's part of what we live in. But listen carefully. It says Jesus tasted death so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus said, if you believe in me... You will never die. You will never taste eternal death. And you go, wait, wait, but people are dying all the time. See, this just proves that it's not right. No, no. It doesn't mean you won't stop breathing someday. It doesn't mean that the process of death will be eliminated. What it means is you will never taste eternal death as a believer in Jesus Christ. You are eternally with the Lord. You will endure the process of death. It will happen to every single person sitting in this room unless the Lord comes back first. You can bet on it. Well, when's it going to happen? I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. Some will go quickly. Some will go. It'll take a long time. There will be a process of your death, whatever that looks like in the future. But that process only leads to a doorway, which then ushers us into eternity with Jesus Christ. What a promise. What a promise that we have there. But this promise is only to the believers. It's only to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, you don't have the same promise. You will taste death eternally. You will go to the lake of fire. That's what the scripture teaches. Look there with me at verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Because Jesus tasted death, in his sufferings, he has become, I like this, the captain of our salvation. He's the captain of our salvation. He did what you could not do for yourself. You could not reconcile your own sins with God. You couldn't do it. But he said, I will do it for you. And did you notice what he's doing, what he says? He didn't just do it and go, all right, that's it. I'm done. You guys are on your own from now. That's it. Have it. See you guys later. See you in eternity if you make it. He didn't say that. What did, say? what did it say he's doing? He's bringing many sons to glory. Do you know what that means? That means if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, as you sit here this morning, you are on your way to glory. Wow. Well, but I've been drifting. It doesn't matter. You're on your way to glory. Get yourself right and get going. But, I, but I, I, I've been away. No, you're on your way to glory if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, what if I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're on your way to eternal death? It's that simple. You go. Well, It can't be that simple. It is that simple. there's, there's There's no other way. And go back to our original question. Why did Jesus go to the cross if he's greater than the angels? Why did he have to do that? Because there is no other way. There was no other way to reconcile your sin. He had to become like us. He had to suffer like us. He had to be tempted like us. He had to live as a man on our behalf. He had to become the captain or the pioneer of salvation. Why? So that we could be brought to glory someday. So that we could get there. So don't tell me that all roads lead to God. It doesn't. If, if, all, if there was a different way, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was arrested, what did he say? Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass me by. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will. There was no other way. He had to become like man. He had to step out of heaven, step onto earth as a man. He had to live and be tempted in every way like we were so that we could become saved, so that we could now be on our way to glory. I think we should stop right there but wait there's more if the chapter ended there it'd be great look what it says it says in verse 11 he sets us apart through sanctification and he calls us brethren for both he who sanctifies that word means set apart for the purposes of God and those who are being sanctified he's the one that's sanctified we're the ones being sanctified are all of one that's we're all of Christ For which reason he is not ashamed to call you brother or brethren. Call them brethren saying, if you're a Christian, you need to know this morning that Christ is not ashamed of you. And you go, oh, no, 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 Rob, you you don't understand. My my life, this past week, you don't understand what it's been. No, he's not ashamed of you if you're a Christian. In fact, he calls you brother. He says, hey, brother. Hey, brother, you're my brother. I'm, I'm not ashamed of you. Maybe you're ashamed of you. And maybe there's good reason for you to be ashamed, but he's not ashamed of you. It doesn't mean we just, oh, no big deal, I, I, I messed up. No, I, I understand there'll be consequences for those things, but to think that my creator goes, I'm not ashamed with you because I've accomplished the work in you, and I am now moving you from where you are onto glory. He has begun a good work, in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. That's mind-numbing. How could he be working with all of us all at the same time, all growing? Some of us looking, at, well, that one's slipping off. That one's doing good. No, he's got his hand in all of it at the same. His sovereignty is so clearly at work in all of our lives. Do you recognize it? In fact, Jesus said to the Father, I will declare your name to my brothers. I'm going to teach them about you. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I. And the children whom God has given me. The children whom have accepted him. Isn't it crazy to think Jesus, think about this now. Jesus is praising God for you. You go, well, I know why he's praising God for me, but I don't know why he's praising God for you. I'm worth it. You're not. No. Think about that for a moment. Because sometimes we think too highly of ourselves. To go, I know why he's praising God for me. No, no. Who are we really? We're nothing but sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how we look on the outside. It doesn't matter our financial condition. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. We're all saved by grace alone. We're saved because we believe on Jesus Christ. We're all nothing but sinners. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that who you are and what his salvation accomplished in you. If you do, you will begin to drift. That's what he told us in the beginning. Look at verse 14 with me. In as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. That's us. We're flesh and blood. He himself, that's Jesus, likewise shared in the same that through death, this is through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Don't miss it here. Jesus has saved you. He has sanctified you. He's defeated death. You're on your way to glory. He's defeated death because he's defeated the devil, because he's defeated Satan. Today, Satan has been destroyed. Well, wait a minute. He's still at work. You see it in the earth. Yeah, but his days are numbered. He even knows his days are numbered because he's read the book of Revelation. I I believe wholeheartedly he knows what's coming his way, but he's determined to take as many people with him as he can. He wants to deceive. He's the father of lies. He wants to get you drifting. He wants to get you away from the Lord. He wants to keep people from believing on Jesus Christ. He will create all kinds of things that get you off your focus point. Good things and bad things. Will you let him move you? Or will you stay focused on God's word? Or when you move, will you come back? Or do you let yourself continue on? When Jesus comes back, he will execute the order to bind Satan and eventually cast him into the lake of fire. Why not now? Why do we have to wait because he's waiting for more people to come to Christ. That's the long suffering of our God. You know, the selfishly I go, come back right now, Lord. I'm good. Let's go. My family, well, most of my family's good. And you start to think about it. and go, wait a minute. Do I really want him to come back right now? Who would be left behind in your family? Who doesn't know him yet? Who hasn't come to the, sal- the saving grace? Who, who hasn't given their life to Christ yet? Hold off a little bit, Lord. I still have a chance to share with them. Give me, give me just a little bit more time. You know what? The beautiful thing is at exactly the right time. When the last one believes, he will return. And not a moment before. In order for Satan's power to be destroyed, Jesus had to die. And when he died as that spotless and perfect lamb, death was defeated. That's why the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians can write, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death? It's sin. The strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you had to be judged on your actions, you would be bound for eternal damnation. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, he's one of mine. She's one of mine. I died for her. She accepted my salvation. He accepted my salvation. I, 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 I paid the price for that. If you're not a believer, you're still under the flesh. You're still under death. In the moment a non believer stops breathing, the moment they take their last breath, they will begin an eternal sentence of eternal death. Where the Bible says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The moment this life ends, eternity begins, in one form or another. There are no more chances. There's no purgatory. Your family can't help you. They can't give money. They can't save you. They can't pray you out. There's no other way. And while you're alive, Satan will keep you bound in sin and death until your last breath, if he is able. But we don't need to stay there. A non-believer doesn't need to stay there. Jesus became flesh and blood. He shared in the same things you do. And through his death, he destroyed the devil and the power of death. And don't miss the last part of verse 15. He releases you from the fear of death. And what else? The bondage of sin. A believer in Jesus Christ has been released from the fear of death. That means you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. You can be. You can be scared to death of it. That's entirely up to you. But you don't have to be. That means you don't have to be in bondage to sin anymore. You can be. It doesn't mean mean I believe all of a sudden I no longer fear death. Or I believe all of a sudden I'm no longer in bondage to sin. You have that option available to you where a non-believer does not. When a non-believer, it, what, what comes beyond? They have to convince themselves there's nothing beyond. Because the moment they convince themselves there's something beyond, they've got a problem. What do we do with what's beyond? But for the believer, we go, what's beyond? My Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where I'm going. I've had the opportunity to sit with people before they pass away that know the Lord, and it's a beautiful time. It doesn't mean they're not in pain. doesn't mean they don't suffer, but they know where they're going. They're on their way to see their Lord. I've also had the opportunity to sit with people that don't know and perhaps are building up resistance. Truth is, I will never know what someone decides in the last moments of life. I can't know that. But I can tell you what I can testify of is the peace that is on the face, that is in the family and the lives of those who do know Christ when they say goodbye. They mourn them because they miss them, but they know that this process of death has now ended and they are forever with the Lord. Is that not beautiful? What an amazing thing. Look there as we finish up with the last couple of verses. Verse 16. For indeed, he does not, does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that's us, that we might be, or I'm sorry, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in the things pertaining to god to make propitiation for the sins of the people for in that he himself has suffered this is christ he suffered being tempted now look what it produced he is able to aid those who are tempted that's us jesus didn't die so that satan could be saved think about that satan's a fallen angel he has no second chances the moment he decided he wanted to be worshipped like God, he was cast out of heaven. He doesn't give aid to the angels. Yet he says, I'll help you. I'll help you. And so I can better understand, so I can know I'm going to become like you. And I'm going to endure the temptation. I'm going to endure the suffering. I'm going to go through everything that you go through. I'm going to help the seed of Abraham. And he's not speaking ethnically there. He's th- speaking spiritually. It's not the Jewish people. The seed of Abraham are all those who come to faith through Jesus Christ, who came in the lineage of Abraham. Jesus became like us. He suffered like us, was tempted like us. And because of this, he is able to stand with us, help us in our temptation. He's reconciled you to God if you believe on Jesus Christ. The word propitiation, it's a funny word, isn't it? Try to use it in a sentence next week. Propitiation. Without Jesus, try to use it in a sentence. It means this. The word propitiation means that he has satisfied the wrath of God. Of God, it doesn't mean that God removed His wrath. It means that Christ satisfies it. It Means my wrath. God says, "My wrath I will put on Him instead of you." We deserve it. We're the ones that make the mistakes. We're the sinners. Jesus says, "I'll take that. I'll take that wrath of God." Not only does He satisfy the wrath of God, He reconciles us to God. Now, sometimes people, when they consider Christ coming to Earth, they want to diminish his deity. Don't diminish the deity of the Lord. Also don't diminish the humanity of Christ. For both were on full display when he walked on the earth. Both his deity and his humanity. He was fully man and fully God. Now consider with me in chapter 2, the author told us if you don't take heed to the things that you hear, if you don't remember the word of God. If you don't do the word of God, if you neglect this great salvation that God has provided, if, you, if it means nothing to you, he said, you'll begin to drift. You'll begin to drift. A drifting ship always ends up either on the beach or in the rocks. In his humanity, Christ tasted death so that you wouldn't have to. Think about that. The moment we say goodbye is the moment we say hello to eternity with him. Don't minimize that in your life. He experienced temptation and suffering so that he can relate to exactly what you're going through. He doesn't understand. He's God. No, 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 no. Fully human, fully God. He, he experienced the same things. Don't drift from him. Instead, will you drift towards him? You see, you get to make that choice. Can you keep your focus on him and walk towards him, or will you allow your life to begin to drift Away from him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as you penned this letter to the Hebrews, there's much insight for us to learn as well. Lord, if we're here this morning and we're drifting, may we reestablish our point in your word. May we refocus on you so that we might be re centered. Lord, if we've neglected our salvation, if we've kind of taken it for granted and we go back and remember that you were the author of salvation what you gave up for us may we see that demonstration of love that you proclaimed in such a beautiful way and Lord may we come to the realization that there was no other way for salvation that in your salvation not only did you set us free from sin freed us from the worry or concern of death but you're bringing us to glory we're on our way we might have a long way to go but you've promised to finish that work in us that you started so we hold you to that promise lord wherever we're at this morning may you just lead us in your ways may the holy spirit just convict our heart where we need to be convicted may we rejoice with you and we give thanks for our salvation and we just uh Love you, Lord, realizing how much it is that you love us. May we not raise ourselves up. May we not find excuses to keep moving away from you. Instead, may we turn around and draw closer. Lord, have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.